Welcome back to The Dark Side. I'm your host, Brianna. Steph is in the house! Hello, I am back. Happy to be here. It's been a long... How many episodes? Like, 15? 10. Oh 10, I think. 10 episodes. But, yeah. well, technically 10 episodes, because we just name them all, like, episode like 14, 15, whatever. But some of them have multiple parts, so it is... Probably actually more than 10. It feels like longer. It's been too long. That's all I know. We're doing a a virtual recording, which is new for us. We are. That's, well, yeah, I guess I don't know how much you want to, like, say about it, but we are recording through uh, Zoom. We're doing a little Zoom meeting because you're hours and hours and hours away. Yeah, moved away, and that's why we haven't recorded in so long. Yes, I did recently move and leave Brantford. Um, I know you've said where you're from before. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Everyone knows that I'm in Brantford. Yes, I, I did. Literally says on our Instagram. <laughs> I left the Southern Ontario bubble. I moved up to the north. So it's been a big so- adjustment. I haven't been able to hang out with you in your apartment and and record and you know brainstorm and stuff but it's good we're getting together through zoom and we're gonna Mm -hmm. get an episode in together and i'm so excited i I am too yes i was thinking about that how like we'll we'll be like oh we're a we're a true crime well we're a podcast with a cosmic twist and i'm like for a podcast that claims that (laughs) It's been like a hot minute since we've had our little cosmic twist. Yes. But it this will be a good one. This one's very if, if, real interesting. Not old tiny, but like older and still Canadian. Mm-hmm. But I'm really, excited. I love the old ones. I know, I know. The one the old ones are fun. Like fun is you know what I mean. They're like just different different vibe. It's different. Yeah. Different time period, different laws, rules, social standards and stuff. So you're just like, woof, this one's wild. But before we um, get right into the case this week, um, I wanted to say thank you to whoever this person is. I just know them as True Crime Junkie 519. And they left a really like nice review about the show so i was really excited to see that so i just wanted to shout them out and say thank you it is always so nice when we hear like positive things and hear that people are digging the show and what we're doing it means a lot so thank you true crime junkie 519 yes that's awesome make sure everyone leave a review mm-hmm. it's worth yeah, it yeah then you'll get a shout out like this plus also um i had shared it on social media and while we're talking about social media, you can go and follow us on Instagram or Twitter or wherever while you're while uh, while I'm talking about it. But fi- I had said in the review that I like I shared a picture of it at five one nine. I was like, oh, I wonder if they are local to Brantford. Yeah, that's a weird. It could be a coincidence, the number, but mm-hmm. I don't know. But yeah, probably are else, local. Anyone else listening? If you're digging the show, if you haven't rated or reviewed, go and do it. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, and also the second thing I was going to say is that this episode will come out on June 13th. So that's mom's birthday. Yes. Happy birthday, mom. I know you listen. Happy birthday. And then 
what else was I going to say? I had a lot of things to say. Okay. Yeah. The other thing was just to say thank you to everyone for being patient because we did, this is our first episode of June. We haven't had an episode out yet because we've been sick and exhausted and tired and (laughs) I had a conference at the end of May that just took me out. (laughs) Yeah. There was a lot going on there. There was definitely some relaxation time needed and it's good because then you can come back and you're at your best to deliver exactly for the podcast that's, and that's what's important I don't want it to ever be like because I really love doing this and I never ever want it to feel like a chore or like I'm tired or delivering something that's like half-assed like no thank you I don't ever want that plus I'm a perfectionist so <laughs> yeah it's worth the wait yeah it's and then it. since this is technically the first episode of June I guess we should just quickly say happy Pride Month. It's yes. Pride Month. Happy I'm a proud Pride member month. of the community. So happy Pride Month to all my fellow everyone in the rainbow. <laughs> all right. So hopefully everyone enjoyed our two-parter on the disastrous Halifax explosion. And hopefully everyone learned something new about Canada's history amongst all of the absolute chaos and devastation. What did you think of that episode? Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I personally loved it. I love historical episodes. They usually it's stuff that you don't know or it's just not talked about very much anymore. So there's so much more to learn about it. But yeah, that was mm-hmm. one I had no idea, had never heard of. And it was really interesting. I really liked that one. Um, I actually teared up at the part about, um, I can't remember his name, but the man that went back. to send out the signals um, Mm -hmm. to the other people and was like, I'm going to make the sacrifice. I teared up and was just like, oh my God. It was a really good Yeah, that man. That man is a hero. Oh, and how he was like, goodbye, boys. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. But yeah, he saved so many people. He saved hundreds of people. So that is another really cool thing about telling these like stories, cases, pieces of history. Like you can give credit to these really awesome people yeah like there's not enough people who would have done what he did so many people would be like well gotta save my own ass let's go yeah it's bringing some attention to something and it's interesting learning about canada's history too like when you touched on um the tribes that were affected Mm -hmm. by what happened i can't remember the name the mi'kmaq yes and um Africville Africa? and stuff. Yes. Africville. So yeah, it it is important to talk about that those pieces of history because even if you did hear about the Halifax explosion, which I'm with you before I had researched it, I never even heard about it, but even if you have, uh, it's maybe up in the air as to if you've heard about the history of Africville or the Mi'kmaq tribe and stuff. So yeah, that I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's nice to just have all these different topics, wide ranging of like, all right, we'll dabble into some true crime. We'll dabble into some old history, some dark history, whatever. But this week it's true crime and we're still in Canada. We're just gonna leave the East Coast and we're gonna go uh, West. We're gonna go to the prairies And we're going to go back in time to 1959 to talk about Robert Raymond Cook. Let's get into it.
So we're gonna be talking about Robert Raymond Cook. So let's just, let's get to know him a little bit. I'll give you a little bit of background on him, all right? Robert Raymond Cook was a cancer. He was born on July 15th, 1937 in Hannah, Alberta. Albertasource.ca says, quote, Recognized by his mischievous smile and short stature, many remember Robert Raymond Cook as a kind and popular individual. He had a natural propensity for mechanics at a young age, learning to drive a trailer truck before the age of 10. Wow. I know. This attraction to vehicles, namely those belonging to others, landed Cook in jail on numerous occasions, end quote. He has a little bit of a, a car klepto. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Based on that first little um, blurb about him, do you have a pickup on anything? I guess we'll just do what we usually do, where I'll just spew out the whole story and then you'll just cut me off when you have something relevant to say. Yes, well... <laughs> I like when we do it a little bit off the cuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's nice. We can just kind of throw things out there. But um, the one thing that I had noticed about his chart was that he has a lot of tension between his moon and Mercury, mm. um, which can create a lot of mental unrest. People with aspects like that need things to do and need to keep busy. And it's really, really good for them to... Um, get outlets like uh, usually they are physical things or working with their hands or something like you have to find oh. a way to um, to work that energy out um, and he has mercury conjunct pluto so that familiar like familiarity with uh, dark <laughs> energy it can come through in so many ways um, not always negative people with aspects like that it can be really into psychology and understanding people and looking for the deeper meanings behind things um, there is just a comfort with darkness um, and often that's linked to to uh, trauma or to you know mm. a reason that someone would be interested in things like that but um when you said the theft when you said the theft thing um i thought about theft is linked with mars and mm -hmm, robbery theft um is linked with mars but petty things like kind of being a person who just slips things into your pocket is more of a mercury thing um i just think it's funny mercury cars um the trickery with mercury and people who kind of they're not really robbing to hurt people or and burt like that's more mars you're have some malicious intentions mercury is you're kind of fucking around it's the trickster um you can't help but you know just pick that thing up or take it with you and you might not have malicious intentions but it's just kind of no wonder he has a mischievous smile yeah the first thing is like recognized by his mischievous smile is like oh your mischievous mercury is yes. showing yeah and i when i saw that mercury conjunct pluto i knew right away okay this person was someone who was a little bit comfortable with things that might make other people uncomfortable um and the car theft this that's funny yeah 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 he was always um he couldn't help it. sticky fingers when it came to yes. vehicles thank you sticky fingers that's that word yeah. i was looking for with mercury your hands sticky fingers it is yeah and we'll see this he's uh he's very sticky that sounds gross (laughs) okay all right so sadly robert's mother died when he was nine years old 
And okay. by 10, he was getting into trouble regularly. So you're like, okay, well, 10-year-olds, sometimes 10-year-olds are little assholes, you know, especially a boy who's bored. But like, you'd think he'd just be like, um, you know, maybe some graffiti, maybe just being a little prick in his neighborhood. No, he stole his first car when he was 10. Wow. Yeah, I noted yes. in my notes, uh, he's a cancer. Cancer is mm-hmm. very, very connected to their mother. He is a uh, cancer son opposite Jupiter. Um, exact. Uh, Jupiter in Capricorn, which is, it's the worst oh. spot for Jupiter. I'll just put it that yeah. way. Um, and his cancer son is opposite Jupiter. It shows that there is a great distance there. Um, implies loss, again, with how connected is to Pluto. There's that comfort. There's a familiarity. He is... Um, it's not surprising that he maybe has lost things or is used to some type of suffering. Um, right. And I actually noted that he, I, I concluded his parents either separated or that he was very, very um, affected by what he saw between them. And because of cancer, I knew it was more leaning towards his mother. That is such, that's like, a very interesting observation and I actually had looked to see if his mother died and that's why the family was separated just because she had unfortunately passed or if they had separated before but based on the research I'm pretty sure that they were happily married and she just happened to pass and I'm not sure um how but yeah, that yeah. Ugh, out of it sounds out of their control with Pluto, things are yeah. always out of your reach. You don't really have any control over how Pluto comes through to you. I mm-hmm. wonder if that's kind of where th- something's jump started for him. Kind of allowed him to maybe think like feed into those dark thoughts that he naturally inclined to him having uh, Mercury conjunct Pluto. For sure, uh, when he was. 12 his father actually remarried so uh his father his the the guy we're mainly talking about robert raymond cook from now i'll just say robert or robert cook because his name's middle name is raymond because his father's name is raymond yeah that's confusing yeah so there's robert cook is the you know the bad guy here raymond is his father so his father, Raymond, had remarried when Robert was 12, and he actually remarried – he married to one of Robert's elementary school teachers, and it was a lady named Daisy May Gaspar. Oh, my goodness. Daisy May. I had noted. What? What? Oh, my God. Well, Jupiter oh is – are teachers. Jupiter represents teachers oh. in your life, and that sun – the sun is representative of your father. So me wow. – when I saw the sun opposite Jupiter, that's why I would kind of thought, okay, maybe the parents separated or there's something unpleasant, that the root would be the father, um, and his – Robert's connection to his mother is so strong that it might be very mm-hmm. upsetting to him and be a catalyst in that way. Um, but, oh, my God, the sun opposite Jupiter, it really shows that there was something in Robert's life that made him – that he didn't like, that he felt disconnected from, or um, he maybe didn't, sun opposite Jupiter implies that you might not feel like you exactly fit in with your surroundings, with your community. Um, It's hard for you to learn from people, Um, the sun being your father. You might not take after Mm -hmm. them. You aren't like them. There's a distance there. And the cancer, though, implies mother. Um, so just so interesting though, how that played out. His mom passed away and then his dad married this teacher. 
It made it just Which probably made that. him so uncomfortable. I think it did, yeah. I don't think that he was particularly a fan of Daisy May, but that is wild of all of the things. Yeah, his teacher. Yeah. So, and then they all moved because, like I said, they were he was born in Hannah, and that's where he had lived. So after uh, Raymond married Daisy, they moved to Stetler, Alberta. And then by 14 years old, Robert was in the Bowdoin Penitentiary, and he spent time here on and off throughout his teens. He was always in and out of this, essentially like a, a juvie center. I see. Makes sense. Um, that's all the information I could really find on him th- through, like, out youth. Yeah. As an adult, he was described as charming, but a compulsive liar. Oh. One source uh, even called him a conscious, consciousless liar. He just... He didn't care um, and would lie about anything and everything, yeah. especially in the moment if it was like, this will get me out of the situation or whatever. Okay, I'll just lie and didn't care. Mercury conjunct Pluto. Um, the, my first note with that was compulsivity. Oh. Um, yes. And it's Mercury and Leo answering to that sun in cancer. Um, it's answering to your own motives or what might be the best for mm-hmm. you. Um, and again, that no. Mercury, your mind, your intellect, the trickster. I think those things were really amplified with that Pluto conjunction in that way where he just couldn't help himself. No, he really couldn't. And all of that just, it's funny because all of that speaks exactly to like literally direct words people are describing Mm -hmm. as mischievous, compulsive. Love when that happens. Those key words and you're like, astrology doesn't lie that way. Um, No. And literally keywords words you literally wrote down mm-hmm. and he has um you know that jupiter in fall in capricorn and then he has aries um aries saturn which is also in mm. fall which is like, okay so basically the worst two places for those planets he has yes. um jupiter is your luck good energy and then saturn is things that are out of your control um and also represents like prisons and uh consequences mm. They're very much opposites. Jupiter and Saturn, they go hand in hand. We've talked about this in previous episodes. I've gone into it quite a bit. So yeah. people who have heard are probably like, I know what you're talking about. Um, when you have things like that, where you happen to have those two planets in the worst signs for them, um, and you have that opposition with your son, I'm not surprised you would be in, in juvie. Like that Jupiter get out of jail free card, he didn't really have that. It was Damn. opposite his son. He didn't have the good luck really at his disposal. The same way he he might try, he has to try a lot harder to get things to work in his favor. And yeah. I actually have a little interesting fact. Uh, I won't touch on it till the end, but it goes, it just leans so heavily into what you just said so it'll be when i say it you'll be like yep that's what fits cool. here uh so yeah the uh consciousness liar and um he also committed petty crimes often as far as anyone knows based on research and also it's only in regards to his charges he's never been charged with a violent crime it's just petty crimes stuff that like you're saying, speaks to the motive of just compulsion and a little bit more of like a, a selfish want of just mm-hmm. like, yeah, I like this though. I'm going to take it or I like this car. I'm going to drive yeah. it. So it was never anything violent. Yeah. In 1957, he was sent to prison for car theft and uh, B&E at a bank. Oh, wow. During his 
Yeah. During his prison stint, he was hit in the head with a lead pipe. And after this incident, his behavior had changed and people reported that he had become quick-tempered and easily aggravated. So never good when a head injury comes in. Mm -hmm. Mm. So uh, technically, when he was in prison, he had another year to serve. But in 1959, about 40 inmates were released by the Queen's Amnesty, which is this like human rights group. And he was one of the prisoners that was eligible for release. So he got out a year early and obviously he's like, fuck. Um, uh, and it was like quick. It was just like, okay, 40 inmates, you, you, and all of you, you're free. So he's like, still had another year, he thought, to sort of plan like what he would do when he got out, like where he would go, if he would go back home. Um, also, when you're in prison, like you do have the opportunity to make money. And he had um, only made $31.81 in money back then. You know I'm about to ask you, what do you think $31.81 is today? And this was 1959. I want to say maybe $170. That's a good guess, but it's actually a lot more. Oh, wow. Okay. It's it's almost $300. It's $298.74. Okay. It's a wild jump, almost $300. So it's, it's not so the most. it's not it's a it's not a lot. It's a decent chunk, but you could not it's do shit with that today. No. Oh fuck no. So yeah, it was he was out uh a year early. He had to his name and he was like I guess I'm just gonna go home like so he just went he just made his way back to Stetler Alberta and I guess just hoped for the best how old was he again at this point 21 had he turned 21 yet he would have been um yeah well no he'd be 20 I think because he's born July 15th and this is 1915 nine oh, okay. so actually 21 yeah i hate math <laughs> <laughs> i did double check he'd be almost curious. 22 okay he'd be almost so 22 very young. Right? you're like an adult but you're still young you're still naive still learning <laughs> <laughs> exactly so uh that was at the end of june 1959 so on june 27th uh, just days after his release, he was arrested in Stetler. So he didn't make his way back home, but he got arrested. And uh, he was charged with obtaining goods under false pretenses. Mm-hmm. The goods, you might ask, what were they? <laughs> well, there was a, uh, a 1959 Chevy Impala convertible. <laughs> a car. I would like to see a picture of that car back then. I bet it was actually really nice. Yeah, it sounds really nice, like an old Impala. Like, mm-hmm. how did he get that? He just could not help himself. Oh, well, that speaks to the charge. So remember, it was obtaining goods under false pretenses. Mm-hmm. So the false pretense was that he had traded in his father's 1958 Chevy station wagon in order to get this convertible. No. So as if this was not drawing enough suspicion to him already, we got we to gotta go in the trunk of the car, of course. So the police are like, buddy, you have this car. It doesn't seem to belong to you. Also, where did it come from? Let me look in your trunk. 
inside the trunk, the police found a box. And inside of this box, there was his family's birth certificates, there was insurance policies, his father's marriage certificate, a bunch of report cards belonging to his five half-siblings. There was also a suitcase with four sets of children's pajamas, new bedsheets, and a photo album. And in this photo album, it has been reported both ways that it was either photos of his stepmother, Daisy, or photos of his biological mother. But I tend to lean towards it being his biological mother. I doubt he had photos of Daisy. It would make more sense to have photos of your mom. It would be a little bit... It sounds creepy in that way. (laughs) I don't know why. It just sounds creepy. If it was his stepmom. Under the possibility, like, under the circumstances of something odd going on, I'm like, I, th- I hope it was just his mom because this kid sounds weird. <laughs> yeah, so far, right? <laughs> sounds like yeah, he's got... like, not trustworthy, so it's... Mm-mm. So, yeah. obviously, the police are look through that trunk and they're like, this is so fucking weird because none of it really... First of all, the stuff that does make sense is suspicious as hell, like po- insurance policies and documents and stuff. But then... Yeah. All of the other stuff, you're like, what is in this suitcase? Pajamas, bed sheets. This is very weird. So they were like, all right, Robert, we're going to search your person. So they searched him, patted him down, and they found his father's wallet. Turns out Robert had traded in the station wagon and bought the convertible using his father's name and ID. So the police tried questioning him on why he had all of this shit in his trunk and why he traded in his family station wagon, which was in his father's name. So it did not belong to him, but Robert could not give and would not give any straight answers. And the police weren't getting anywhere with him. They had enough. They were like, okay, you cannot give us any straight answers. Obviously, something weird is going on here. You've literally been out of jail for a few days we can tell that you're like hiding something or there's there's more to this so they were like let's go and they took him over to the cookhouse to go and talk to his father to try I and think get it's sorry hmm? i think it's very interesting that someone that is known for being a little bit compulsive with their with their lying right <laughs> i was i find it interesting he's not trying to spin something extremely elaborate to get himself out of this usually people who can't help but lie about things would be continuing to do that if they were innocent you'd think i don't know that might sound weird but you'd think that they would really be trying to stress like and for him to clam up and not say anything is it seems out of character from what we've heard about him so far it just points to a little it's suspicious to me mm-hmm it takes him a he eventually does start to, you know, spin his sort of tales, but it takes him a while. At first he won't give mm. straight answers. It's just like, oh, like yeah, I have the car, he lets me take the car. Or like, yeah, I have his ID and wallet just because like, oops, I think I might have grabbed it by accident. Just like small stuff like that. But then right. as we uh as they keep pushing and investigating and getting to the house, he does start to give some other stories interesting i wonder if he knew he might get himself into trouble and mm -hmm. managed to keep it in just a little bit to craft something that he because he might have known i i can't say something that i'm can't take back later exactly also even think about what we talked about earlier about how he hasn't he's obviously been in trouble i mean he literally was in prison but it's for like 
you know, theft, stealing, uh, pe- petty crimes. Mm-hmm. The B and E is not really petty, in my opinion, but like you said, yeah. it was an inherently violent. It seemed right. So you can see how, like you're saying, it's a bit out of character for him to not immediately start spinning tails. Well, what we're about to get into is is a lot different than what he was what he was used to. So they, the police were like, we're taking you to your father's home, which was on 57, uh, 52nd Street in Stetler. And they were like, we have to sort this out. I'm tired of your fuckery. Let's go and talk to your dad. We, we want to get some answers as to what is going on here. So they get there. They go to the house. But there's no one there. There's no one home. And this was very odd because it was a Sunday and Robert had a big family. So his father, 53-year-old Raymond Cook, his stepmother, 37-year-old Daisy, and he had five half-siblings that I briefly mentioned. Mm -hmm. So there was a nine-year-old named Gerald, eight-year-old Patrick William, seven-year-old Christopher Fred, five-year-old Kathy, and three-year-old Linda May. None of them were anywhere in sight. And like I said, it's a Sunday. You'd think they'd be – someone would be around. No one's working. Though the kids aren't in school, some of the kids especially back then. That's Mm -hmm. a day where people are home; they have their feet up, or you know, the wife's cleaning probably, and yeah, (laughs) husband's having his day off, entertaining the kids. Like there's five of them, and they're all nine or younger. Like it would be, it would be crazy. Yeah, but they get there and they're like, "What the hell? No one is here. This house is fucking dead quiet." So the police ask Robert, like, "Yo, where's your family?" Like, where did they, where'd they go? And again, he was like, hmm, I don't know. I have no answers for you. Or, and he did give answers. They were not helpful. They were not straight answers. The story kept changing. So this, at this point, after they are at the house and he's feeling the heat, he does start to give some stories about what's going on. So the one he told was that his father asked him to go and trade in the station wagon for the convertible. And the police were like, that doesn't make sense. And it doesn't because it's a huge family. So if you're not including Robert, there's seven of them. There's yeah. a husband, a wife, and five children. And they're going to go and get a convertible? Like, what, are you just going to stack the kids on top of each other inside? Yeah, like, it's just not believable. <laughs> it's not a – it just isn't practical. He needed to think more about that one. (laughs) So I think that he realized that's not a good story. So he was like, well, actually, okay. He did tell me to trade in the convertible, but there's more to it. There's more to it. So um, I actually gave my dad uh, $4,100 and uh, to move the family out to British Columbia. And I was going to go and follow them out there later. But first I had to trade in the car. Also, forty oh, four. I know four thousand one hundred dollars today is um over forty grand. So he just handed over forty grand to his father and was like, "Okay, go out to BC. I'll join you after I trade in your car." Okay, this is where his compulsive lying is coming out, and he's mm-hmm. not even able to. In my opinion, that is just, there's no way that's real. No, it's, it's, it's extreme. Plus think about how, like he, he, he was in prison for a year, like yeah. a couple of years before this. Where did he get 40 grand from? <laughs> that was my first and thought. That makes no sense. 
and uh, that on him, he had his father's wallet and ID. So, like, was his father going to travel to BC without a wallet and ID? Yeah. Like, it just, it doesn't make sense. And the police were like, um, I don't trust you. I'm going to go over and talk to your, to the the neighbor and also Raymond's best friend. So, the father's best friend. So, the police asked Raymond's best friend if he knew anything about the family moving to BC. Like, yo, you're the best friend. You know this family well. When when did this plan happen that they're going to go to BC? And the friend's like, I have never heard of that in my life. They were not going to BC. And he would know they're best friends. They were close. He was close to the family. He knew them. He yeah. would know if they were moving. So then they were like, okay, then I'm going to go and talk to the neighbor and see if he saw or heard anything. So they spoke to the neighbor and the neighbor was like, oh, I, I was actually hoping you could tell me where they are because... Raymond promised to come over and help me move furniture and he just never showed up and they haven't been home and it's not like him to just bail on me like he's a reliable guy Mm, interesting so the officers decided um obviously (laughs) nothing is adding up so they were just gonna have a look around the property I could not figure out exactly in this initial like look around if they went inside of the house or if they just sort of wandered around the property but but the only thing i can say for sure is that one article says that when they were looking around i also don't know what time of day it was they didn't turn on any lights they only used their flashlights so i don't know if they were just like shining in the window looking around if they walked the property but Mm -hmm. it's not positive but they didn't do like a thorough search obviously maybe because they didn't have any grounds yet. They just thought Robert was suspicious or they just wanted to. I think that things and... were more relaxed back then. Um, yeah. You could kind of go in and do that. Like today, I don't think that would fly. You'd get a lot of backlash. But back then, I think that that was kind of like, hey, we're going in and we're we're shining our flashlights and we're looking like in that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think it was different. They did. They just took a did a, did a cursory look around using flashlights. Um, but what I do know for certain is that the investigating RCMP officer that was there uh, thought that something was off with Robert's explanations. He didn't like that there was no sign of such a big family. He knew something was weird. So he phoned the RCMP branch in Red Deer, Alberta, and asked them to bring more investigators in the morning to check out the property more thoroughly because he just inherently could feel there was more to this and it was sinister. Yeah. On June 28, 1959, a team of RCMP specialists went into the cookhouse. They saw droplets of blood on the TV and then splatter on the wall. That was a mess and it was obvious that somebody had tried to wash it off but didn't do a great job. (laughs) The sheets were stripped off of the beds and there was blood everywhere. The blue prison issue suit that Robert would have been wearing upon his release was in the midst of this bloody chaos, just strewn about in a bedroom, I'm pretty sure. 
Oh my god. Along with this, there was a shotgun. And the shotgun had a bent barrel. Robert had denied owning a shotgun. He said that he he didn't know anything about it. He didn't think his family, his father, no one had a shotgun. He doesn't know why there would be one there. So the a photo of the shotgun was actually put in local newspapers to see if anyone owned it or knew anything about it. And then that in turn would hopefully bring forward information. Mm-hmm. And this was actually initiated by the defense counsel. Um because Robert was saying he didn't know whose who's it was and where it came from. So the defense was like, well, let's put it in the paper then and get some answers as to whose gun this is. And uh, no tips or responses ever came in. Ah, I wonder what's up with the bent barrel. Like, that's weird. I'll uh, maybe touch on that. Oh, no. I, f- I don't even know if I can handle it. <laughs> Under a mattress, the police found a stained white shirt. Okay, the shirt had a laundry mark, so I don't, I think that maybe means like a dry cleaning tag or something, like from where it could have come from. I don't know. Oh, okay. A laundry mark and the mysterious name Ross was marked on it. So Ross, R-O-S-S, all capitals. RCMP invest. I know, right? (laughs) Pivot! (laughs) the investigation took a pivot (laughs) oh my god if only he went to help move the furniture this wouldn't have happened (laughs) why is this all fitting (laughs) so the rcmp investigators made inquiries at various laundries in stetler red deer edmonton anywhere that was like big name nearby to try and see if they could identify the owner of the shirt again they came up with nothing okay that's weird he must have stolen it yeah, I think so. I think he's just a little klepto. And he's like, oh, this is a nice shirt. I don't want to wear my prison issue blue suit anymore. Mm-hmm. After making their way through the house, the RCMP headed across the property to the garage. Inside the garage, they found the grease pit. I had to look up what a grease pit was. Is that where you dump or like oil and stuff? Well, you see, that's what I thought. And I was like, that sounds very 50s. But it's actually um, like it it can be different sort of shapes or whatever. But it's essentially like a hole in the ground. It can be a hole straight down. It can be sort of like a um, what's it called? Trench. But it's for. Uh, mechanics okay. so that instead of having like a crane or a lift to so that you can work under the car you actually just stand in like this hole in oh, the ground oh i did not you can, know that's what that's called i know it's apparently just called a grease pit interesting so the, in this case it was um more of like a hole in the ground so it was two feet by four feet and it was six feet deep so you would just park the car over it and then you could stand in the pit and work on your car instead of having to worry about a crane to lift it up. Interesting. So this grease pit, it was covered with cardboard. And so the investigators moved the cardboard. And uh, the smell immediately told them that something was very wrong. Oh, no. In the grease pit, covered with tires and blankets, there was seven bodies. Raymond Cook and his wife, Daisy, had been shot. Their five children, Gerald, Patrick William, Christopher Fred, Kathy, and Linda May, had been bludgeoned to death. Oh, that's so cruel. 
You know how you asked, why is the shotgun barrel bent? Oh my god. I thought, oh, I didn't even put that together. I keep, yes. So he must have taken them, the parents out and then, oh my he, god. That's horrible. It was determined that that barrel was bent because that's what bludgeoned the children. Babies. The oldest was nine. Oh. The youngest is three. They're tiny. So horrible. And so, like I said, the smell was awful. And it was determined that based on the decomp, likely they were murdered on Thursday, June 25th. So three days before their bodies were found. Based on blood evidence throughout the home and the fact that everyone the seven bodies they found, they were all wearing pajamas. So the investigators theorized that the murderer entered the cook's home, shot and bludgeoned the family to death in their beds, and then dragged them to the garage to put them in the grease pit. Mm-hmm. The bodies were in, like, they were savagely beaten and, and murdered. And to the point that they were almost unidentifiable, and that suggests overkill. Yeah. And it's very personal. I'm sure. Yeah. If there's overkill, it usually points to uh, someone close to the family, even a family member. So yeah. naturally, the given the circumstances, the <sighs> overkill, they were like, okay, all right, we got a prime suspect, Robert someone close to the family and had just been in trouble for having obtaining a, I'm sorry obtaining goods under false pretenses Robert was there a prime suspect it makes sense I would think that too <laughs> if I were the detectives especially if you have his rap sheet and you can see things that he's done and yes maybe he wasn't mm-hmm. always violent on paper um, it doesn't mean he didn't have severe suppressed rage or something and some issues that he right. was not dealing with. There's such a distance between him, like that sun opposite Jupiter, really implies a great distance between him and um, after listening to this, with the many layers with these planets, I think it speaks to the distance between him and his father, the mm-hmm. how the loss of his mother has taken a toll on him even if he doesn't realize it but he doesn't have any biological siblings he doesn't have any siblings really that are his own age that he could relate to that he had spent time with that he and i think that distance that i saw in his chart totally believed that jupiter you could see how many children someone would have um you can view someone's personal ability to have children um and how like fertile you are and how many children you have and people with strong jupiter connections have lots of children um or have the ability to have lots of children like you're very fertile Mm -hmm. um but that sun opposite jupiter i think that him not having siblings and not feeling connected to anyone and it maybe shows that he could have felt slighted with his father having Mm -hmm. several other children with another woman a whole yeah, like a whole new family, mm-hmm. essentially. And he maybe didn't get the love and attention that he really needed 
we don't know so much about his life to really know how he felt about certain things or exactly. about how things could have impacted him it sounds like from what you've told me his family was decent like like they weren't bad people his dad was reliable you said and it sounds like they like his stepmother uh, was a teacher like mm-hmm. so i just wonder i if, never um, yeah i never found anywhere that it was like volatile or mm-hmm. anything it seemed just like a standard 50s family it sounds like he really had a distance between him and his father and like his sense of family um and the way that the loss had affected him and Mm -hmm. not having a sense of um maybe courtship with his siblings or with his friends like did he have very many friends he doesn't really sound not that i no not anyone stand up for for no I don't think so. I think if he had friends, there are more like acquaintances or like associates running in similar circles. Mm-hmm. It also he's at remember he's so young. He's in his early twenties. Yeah, and he'd spent um so much of his teens in a penitentiary, like a, a juvenile center. It's not um so like the norm. It's he didn't, it's not a traditional no. He didn't have a lot of people close, and even the oldest of his half siblings was nine. So he's over a. De- he's got over a decade on that kid yeah there's he didn't relate to didn't have anyone close to relate if to they, if it were him i can really see in his chart there with that um that sense of whatever he's been through i think that impacted him a lot and maybe that's just why his rage was taken out on his on his family in the end like i i lost everything i don't have anything why mm-hmm. should anyone have anything and then you have the head injury on top of it, which is mm-hmm. never good. Yeah. Getting hit with a lead pipe. Woof. Yeah, that one's interesting. I wonder um, about the Aries-Saturn aspect. Um, with him having Aries-Saturn in fall, I wonder if the connection with Aries to your head and Saturn um, representing those things that are out of your control, prisons, consequences. Um, it also represents like chronic illnesses and mm-hmm. so it's it's not exactly like an inherited chronic thing but um i it is interesting that he has it is that planet in an unpleasant position mm-hmm. any other comments or no keep going it just you're just stewing on I, it. Yeah, I'm just, nothing pops out to me. <laughs> There's nothing that immediately pops out to me. So I just was kind of having a moment looking at it thinking, hmm. yep. so I don't know. It kind of, yeah. I'll keep telling you about them, tell you about what happens next. And then maybe just as I keep telling you the story, you'll get other little pieces. While in custody for the charges of obtaining goods under false pretenses, the RCMP officer, Corporal Tom Roach went to Robert and read him his rights. Apparently, uh, Robert was was shocked and he had broke down crying and he was so distressed that he was left alone for a while so that he could chill the fuck out. And the officers eventually went back to him to explain that his he was read his rights because of what happened to his family and he was being detained for their murders. This is an interesting part to me because I'm I'm not positive if he had his little fit of hysteria before he even knew that his family was murdered. 
I was thinking that. I wasn't, I was wondering to myself about where that was playing out. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It sounds, based on the, the articles that I've read, that he wasn't even told yet like a, a how bad it was that his whole family was dead and murdered and he was being charged. It seems like he, I don't know though, but how, whatever else he reacted, like I would think in a way you should react if you find out your whole family's mm-hmm. dead, but they had just let him chill out for a minute. They went back and was like, yeah, we read you your rights because your whole family is dead and we are charging you with um, the murders. Uh, now, despite being implicated in murdering his entire family, all seven of them, he was actually only charged with the murder of his father. And it was likely because this would speed up the trial process. Wow. If you're just if you're just charged with one, you only need evidence to prove one and you don't have to try and build seven cases. You can build one. Um, we kind of saw that in the the Joseph Naso case where they were certain he murdered seven women, but or six women, whatever one it was. But they ended they only did the four. I find that um because it just would it would just make the trial so much speedier than trying to build all these. It other makes cases. sense logically, but I don't know why I'm kind of like, eh. Well, yeah, it does make sense. Saves people money, yeah. time. Plus, you can only be like <laughs> sentenced if if it's like a death sentence case or something. Then you can only be sentenced to death once. So they're like, why? Oh, yeah, okay. Waste it, but it's just one of those things where it feels icky because at the end of the day, there's all these other people who have lost their lives and they deserve justice. Their family deserves justice. So to not even really take a case for them is like, ugh, just feels icky. Yeah. But yeah. So, yeah, charged only with his father's murder, implicated in the six others, but he he denied. He denied it all. He said he was innocent. He would never murder his father, let alone his whole family. So he was transferred to the Pinoca Mental Institution in Pinoca, Alberta. Um, that's what it was called at the time. I don't even know if it's still if it's open anymore. If it is, it's totally rebranded, but it's not called a mental mental institution. <laughs> yeah, they changed. That. It was about now. Yeah, it was in the fifties though, different time. It was about an hour southwest of Settler, and he was transferred there so that he could be held for a thirty day. Uh, psychiatric assessment so on July 10th uh, Robert said that he wanted to go either to the funeral of his family or to the graves it's reported both ways that it was the funeral or it was just to go and visit their graves but either way he was denied because he literally (laughs) was being held Edge for charges and implication of their murder. So they were like, yeah. no, you're not allowed. And he was pissed. He's not trust- a trustworthy wanted- person to. No. And they were also like, we've literally charged you with murdering your dad. No, you're not allowed to go to the funeral or the grave or whatever. So that night, because he was fucking pissed off, he's in his, he's probably in a cell and in, in the hospital having a little temper tantrum and. I guess somehow he had discovered that the bars on the window in his cell were loose. 
So he worked away at them and he was eventually able to push them out. (laughs) So just after midnight on July 11th, he escaped. Oh, he's so... He's a little sneaky devil. But yeah, he he had his little fit, realized the bars were loose. He pushed him out and he was, he fled. He escaped that institution. So much comes back to his Mercury conjunct Pluto. You can see like his thought processes are so chaotic and he's just... And selfish. And he's just trying to get through every day it seems like doesn't really think of the future too much with the decisions that he makes no he doesn't and i'm not surprised he would be able to break out though um he seems like he has a lot of will and And what did you say about um was it the mercury and the moon relationship and using your hands and keeping busy yeah i could see a lot of mental unrest there like he when you have mm-hmm. a strong mercury moon aspect like a harsh one you have a disturbing awareness mm. of how you feel and usually you don't agree with it like it's kind of like you disagree with your emotions you mentally are trying to override them or it could be the other way around depending on which planet is more dominant it's hard to tell with him because i'm not sure if he has moon in libra or scorpio um so oh, yeah. there is a cast chart for noon because it's the most mm. central point of the day um and there's a higher chance it would be in libra just based on like percentage wise like it entered scorpio in the late evening um i think around i didn't look at it specifically but like i can tell it would it would be in the evening and there's a late there's more of a chance then but who knows what time he's born um so you can't exactly see what planets his moon would be answering to or how strong the aspect is But it is there regardless. Um, He has that Mercury Mm -hmm. conjunct, um, or sorry, Mercury square moon. So I just, I've pondered that and wondered, okay, how strong could it be? What could that indicate? But um, it implies that there's a lot of unrest there and that it's good for people who have that to have hobbies and things to stimulate them. And um, often they are very active or they, they should be because they you can be that compulsivity comes out um things that you repress things that you don't acknowledge things that you're not listening to eventually they're going to find their way to the surface in an unpleasant manner um because of that disturbing awareness that you have and you can it's like you're fighting with yourself so i I do Mm -hmm. wish i could see more about that about how it answers to how those planets are answering to each other and which one is more powerful if you know Either way, the moon is approaching the aspect. It's forming the aspect. It's applying. Um, and so it is very strong. It's not a separating aspect that's already happened and passed. You're in the aftermath. It's building. So you can see, I'm just so curious, the later in the day he's born, the more strong, the stronger the aspect would be because it's closer and closer to that um, exacting aspect um and he i think that that would came out in his personality a lot in the decisions that he made and again the moon is so personal to you Mm -hmm. and it's kind of wedged between his sun and his jupiter because they oppose and those are cardinal signs capricorn and cancer and then he has yeah um Again, it would be either the Libra or Scorpio. We're not sure, but it's right there at the end. And it's also cardinal. 
if it would be in Libra or having just moved into the fixed Scorpio sign. And it's both, it's squaring those planets as well. It creates something called a T-square. There's a lot of friction. It's very karmic. It's uncomfortable. Um, in And it's one of those things that you can't avoid. You have to deal with it in this life. And the moon is at the center. So what bothers me is that I'm right. like, oh, I wish I knew what time so that I could see the chain of reactions here. What planet is bringing out what energy? Super interesting though. Um, very, very explosive, very, very compulsive. And he it's like almost and like very like um like instant like gratification mm-hmm. almost like i just he's like uh, with the impulsivity and just um however he's feeling not handling emotions very well and just being like uh reactive like yeah. really reactive and eventually it would catch up to him and then and then he would do something exactly. that he i can see him being very disgusted with himself after with aspects like that with how uncomfortable it can be mm-hmm. but again um the for the that mercury conjunct pluto implies that he's not as comfortable as one might be or one might should one should be um because it's so it's just so familiar to him he can't escape it it's very it would be very it's almost like a cycle where even if he feels like right he disagrees with thoughts that he has and feelings that he has it's it's hard to stop it's hard to stop those things it's hard for him to not steal it's hard for him to not hurt people um the Mm -hmm. It seems like it's been a cycle since mm-hmm, he the was T-square a child. And the sun and moon being involved shows that it's come. It started young. It started in the home. Um, your parents are implied. I think that that's why I think the loss really affected him. Um, and Jupiter being I involved so in his dad having this other family that he didn't perhaps feel connected to or very... Who knows how he felt? I'm so curious. Also... Um... Yeah, a whole new family. And Daisy was a um, f- fair bit younger than the dad. The dad was 53 at the time of his death, and Daisy was oh, 37. Wow. Oh, my so God. She was that's she was pretty, pretty much between his age and her his father's yeah. age. Yeah, exactly. So it is just a very interesting dynamic. And then the huge gap between robert and his mm-hmm. half siblings like he had he technically has a half sister who's she was yeah he, three. Seemed, he seems very alone like <laughs> and and maybe he was always doing things to try to escape the loneliness that he felt so he's getting deep <laughs> and then he escaped yeah. the institution so he was like i'm sick of this i'm escaping the institution and uh, he did. He used his sneaky, tricky little hands and fled. And then, of course, the public found out that uh, he had fled and was on the run. And there was mass hysteria. People uh, hid in their houses with shotguns. They fled the area to go and stay with relatives in other cities. People gathered in like groups to do overnight vigils. People were like, wow. not having it. So newspapers at the time said that the search for Robert was the largest manhunt in Alberta history. There was more than 100 RCMP officers and 60 Canadian Army troops. That's just crazy. scouring the area looking for him. I can't believe him. I've never heard of that. It was huge. Like, no, I know. It's it is wild. a while ago, but 
that's that's interesting i love hearing when people get together though in that way and they're like we gotta hunt this guy down <laughs> i know they and they do they're like let's let's do it those who are not like afraid enough to flee they were like well we'll just post up we'll get this guy like and um what's his name what's his name the scary guy that we're both Michael. like his scary oh. picture the night stalker oh richard ramirez yes oh i hate that the the um like drawing the police sketch i, I can't know, even look so at that scary. photo it's like an alien don't dyson one time when i was telling i don't even know what episode it was and i was telling him the case and then i, I just look over and he's just holding up his oh, phone and it has that? the richard ramirez i think it was forest city unsolved unsolved um episode 18 i think but i just looked over and i was like why because i hate that photo i hate it it creeps me out yeah same just something like about that, it that was cruel now I'm, he's left i don't know where i think he went to go and pet kobe but i was like oh my god <laughs> no thank you but yeah it is great when you get the vigilante like everyone is like fuck this guy and they just beat up richard and hold him down until the police oh, I love come that. vigilante justice but it's not great. i guess they're not vigilantes no not, well kind no. of because vigilante i believe just means like you're not supposed you're a to citizen do that taking stuff. the law in your own hands but it didn't hurt anyone no it was a good thing the people that it hurt was richard and who cares <laughs> richard what on um morbid the morbid uh podcast i listened to it's so it's, they're funny they called him because apparently he had really bad breath and everyone mm-hmm. would remember his gross halitosis breath yeah and his so, rotting mouth yeah they said it smelled like wet leather so on morbid <laughs> they they call him richard stanky chops <laughs> <laughs> stanky chops ramirez oh that's funny so yeah this fit this town here they were like we're all posting up. We got our shotguns. We're keeping vigil. And uh, falling right back into his old ways, Robert stole a car. And it resulted in a police chase. So the car that Robert was driving ended up rolling. But he was totally unharmed somehow. And he just got away on foot. But <laughs> people spotted... Shit. I know. People spotted him, though. And they reported the sightings to the police. So he was recaptured at a pig farm near... Basha, Alberta. And this is where That's it changes pretty funny. to Willie Pickton. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Pick farm. This guy is interesting. I really yeah. wish I knew his time of birth just to see what houses um, this energy plays out in because it's such a partial picture. Mm-hmm, I know. And uh... Born in 1937, there's no way unless your mother cared enough that anyone noted what time you were born. Yeah, especially with Kay. Like, I don't know what it is, but even, I don't know if it's just Ontario or if it's like this everywhere, but on our birth certificate, it doesn't have our time of birth. Um, Which, no. It doesn't. Oh, no, not on our certificate. And some places no, do, right. and that's a way that you can get your birth information. But here, like, I had a friend that had to call the hospital that she was born at and be like, hi, can you, like, find my record of birth and tell me what time I was born? And they were able to tell her because her mom didn't know. Well, how do we know? Um, well, we have those, like, <laughs> shout out to you, mom. I hope you're listening. <laughs> but you had, we had, um, 
like I have a little book that and it has coins in it that Opa got for um me when I was born it's like a collectible oh, thing and there's a yeah. card in it and she put like my full name birthday uh place of birth it has all of that and I think that we all kind of have cool. something like that to our degree and I'm I think on our little baby pictures, I feel like the time oh, might that's what be it on is. there. I know it's like has your weight and the date. It's on mine yeah, for sure. I know that. I don't know if that's a BGH thing, like just the hospital in Brantford, the way that they printed it because we were all born at that hospital. But we have little baby pictures from like our when we were first born and it has a timestamp mm-hmm. on it. I'm almost positive it has the time, right? You have yours? Uh, I don't have that photo, but I, I can picture yeah. it and it does have the time yeah, on it. Yeah, look at it when you're there Monday. I'm curious. Like, I swear to God it has all of ours. It must. Uh, but regardless, it, yeah, she, we have right. – our some moms are do that. Our moms did that. They have little things, little baby trinkets. And they – I really feel mm-hmm. like most moms just remember. But some don't. Some don't. If yeah, you have a difficult just, birth or something and you're not even present, you don't know. <laughs> Yeah, or if you had like a scheduled C-section or something, you're like, yeah, literally, this yeah, is what time. Yeah, that, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. It's my appointment. So, uh, yeah, he was uh, recaptured at a pig farm a half hour, half an hour east of Pinoca. And apparently he was just hiding in a pig shed and was apprehended easily. There wasn't any incident. He gave up, didn't resist. I'm not certain, but I believe he was taken back to Pinocchio mental okay, institution. Okay, he didn't even resist. Yeah, he did it for the thrill. Like, come on. <laughs> so. And and just out of like um, revenge, yeah. almost like, well, you're not gonna let me leave to go to see my family's graves or their funeral, whatever mm-hmm. one it was. Well, then I'll just escape. And like, I doubt he even went to their graves or whatever, because like, of course, that's the first place that they're gonna look for you. But also, I don't think it was about that i think he just wanted to get some fresh air or something he if he wanted to he never made it there like no i doubt it (laughs) sounds like a character this is a character While awaiting trial, Robert sent a letter to his lawyer, a guy named Gifford Maine. It was dated October 5th, 1959, and one part of the letter reads, quote, I have some information that I did not want to give out before on where and what I was doing on Thursday night, end quote. Thursday night is the night, is June 25th. That's the day they think the murders happened. Oh, no. So in the letter, he goes on to write that he was involved in a break and enter at Cosmo Cleaners in Edmonton, Alberta, at the time that the murders took place. This is, I wonder, although the police did check each laundromat they could, and Edmonton was one of the places, but Cosmo Cleaners sounds like a laundromat, and I wonder if that shirt, Mystery Ross shirt, could have come from there. Oh, wow. Okay, who knows? Do you know if this was verified? If there was a burglary that happened? Um, well, it's not. Okay. No. 
because you said so that they checked. at the at right. Yes, so he did write in this letter that that's where he was, and he claimed that he had an accomplice. It was a guy named Albert Victor Sonny Wilson. And at this point, Sonny Wilson was being held at Prince Albert Penitentiary in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. (laughs) So he's real, but he's in Saskatchewan. So David McNaughton, who was one of um, the defense counsels on Robert's side, he asked a Saskatchewan lawyer named Klein Heridance to go to the to, to the prison and question him on his whereabouts. Because he's like, you're local, you're in Saskatchewan, go and ask Sonny Wilson if where he was on that day. So, so Gifford Maine is the lead defense counsel for Robert, but he had suffered a mild heart attack in October. So the case fell to his partners, Frank Dunn and David McNaughton. And that's why David was following up on the lead for from Robert. But my research, uh, from my research, it is unclear, as I was saying, if this lead ent- went anywhere. Um, I I can't definitively, like, say, like, what Sonny's response was. But based on the fact that the lead didn't go anywhere and Robert's alibi was never concretely proven, I think that Sonny denied the allegation. And then, like, you were asking, could you verify the, the break and enter? I don't think they could. So, again, it's just speculative on my end, but interesting. I don't th- I think maybe it was I mean, a also lie. he ha- it's also like you said like. he had that shirt. Um so that does kind of corroborate something and he also could have been smart enough in that sense to think I have this shirt, I did steal it. Um this might kind of help back up my story if I say that that's this is what I did. Exactly. But who knows when he stole it, if it was even stolen from Cosmo Cleaners. Like, he could have stolen it even before he went to prison the first time. why, if you did do something like that, would you only end up with a shirt? That doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. It sounds like he... A breaking enter for a shirt. That just does not make sense. It sounds like stealing the shirt was a crime of opportunity in itself, and he just ended up with it and then tried to maybe use it as a plot point and <laughs> spin it yeah yeah he's like i can spin a story and there is this mystery shirt they're asking about i can just make that part of it so yeah that makes sense to me and he's a compulsive liar yeah. he cannot help himself he sounds like he was and, trying uh, but, okay, so what? but for the most part yeah, yeah no it wasn't there it wasn't working <laughs> for him as as i had uh, mentioned earlier robert always maintained his innocence. He's always said he did not have anything to do with murdering his family. He would never do it. He was innocent. And in this same letter that I've been talking about, the one that he wrote to Gifford Maine, he writes, quote, I know I am innocent and not capable of killing anybody. It's just something I couldn't do. I couldn't hit a person I even disliked with boxing gloves on when I had him helpless on the ropes, end quote. So he's just saying, I, 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 I would not murder I could not murder. And remember, up until the murder charge, he had never been charged with any violent crimes. So it doesn't sound totally wild. But I think you briefly at the beginning had touched on something where there's the other side to that coin where you just because you've never been charged with something doesn't mean you didn't do it. Also, there's a ton of petty crimes. So it could have been escalation. There's also the head exactly. injury to consider. So, like, it's just 
I am sure there are examples of people who um, have records of things that are minors or have no records of all at all mm-hmm. who have done horrible things. Exactly. There, there's no doubt about that. So it's so, just something you can see both sides of, but to also take a grain of salt with, because yeah, yeah, like even just think about like there's people who probably steal every single day, but you would look at their record and be like, they don't have one. They, yes. They don't have a record. There's no way. And it's like, and well, there are just so, just because you look a certain way or you seem a certain way or you're charming or you're into, there's whatever. There's people who do things, commit crimes, come in all, all forms. Yes, they do. There's no, I don't know. It's it's hard to put like a lens on things, of course, and be like, you fall into this category, you do or oh, you yeah. don't do something. Um, it's not that easy. Yeah. So you can, for sure, obviously p- your lawyer, whoever's going to be like, he never <laughs> committed a violent crime. Exactly. Why would he do that? But yeah, people have <laughs> never done a lot of things until they do them. <laughs> right. It, it happened. It could happen. I never did heroin. I never did, like... Until I did. <laughs> this is an extreme example, but so was murdering, so I'm just trying to... <laughs> I see the point you're making. So and they just... say once you do that, it changes your life and you're never the same. And, like... Well, yeah, exactly. Know, just people do things. Life happens. <laughs> I'm not comparing using drugs and murdering. Let me clarify let me just put that out there. They're not the same, but are yeah. they? No, I'm just kidding. I know. <laughs> I know that, but it's always good to clarify. So despite Robert claiming his innocence, uh, nothing came up that could prove he didn't commit these murders. So the trial was to take place. Actually, two trials took place. So the first trial began on November 30th, 1959. It was presided over by Justice Peter Greschuk at the courthouse in Red Deer, Alberta. The jury deliberated for an hour and a half and they found Robert guilty of murdering his father. Because remember, he was only charged with the murder of his father. He's implicated in the others, but not officially charged. In 1959, this would have been capital murder. So he received a mandatory death sentence and the execution was scheduled for November 15th, 1960. The defense appealed the verdict on the basis that Justice Greschuk didn't allow testimony from a witness. So because they they said they he denied testimony from a, a vital witness here. And they did actually win that appeal, so a second trial was granted. This time, the trial was held in Edmonton, and it was presided over by Justice Harold Riley, and it was on June 20th, 1960. So Robert took the stand to defend himself and give an alibi. And in my research, I I was not able to confirm if he took the stand in both trials or because he won the appeal if he decided to take it just for the second one. But regardless, I know for sure that it's the second trial and he was on the stand and he said he checked into the commercial hotel in Edmonton. Um, This is his alibi for the time of the murders. He said that he checked into the commercial hotel in Edmonton. He then stole a car from a lot on the south side of the Calgary Trail to drive down to Bowdoin. 
Bowdoin is the name of the institution, the penitentiary that he stayed in as a teenager. So he said that he drove down to Bowdoin to get cash that he had hid there in 1957. 1957 is the year that he went to prison. The first time. Where would he have hidden it that he could get it? Um, He couldn't say. (laughs) That what? He didn't say. He just said that he drove down there to get cash. And it's not reported on or maybe he couldn't answer where this cash was supposedly hidden or maybe he didn't want to give his hiding spot away. Are you – do you have like transcripts or is this all like – there, how, do, how do they report that? There was transcripts. There is court documents. Um, and there, the lawyer, uh, David McNaughton, has been very vocal about this, even to this day. Like He's still alive and he is still very um, open and vocal about it all. So a lot of this so information cool. is corroborated with the defense counsel himself. But there is some transcripts. Um, no, I would I, love to. See, I wish you could see the video of him. You know, I like know. just to see his, like his gait, like his demeanor as mm-hmm. he speaks, and like just him in the courtroom, how he acts. It would be so interesting There's, to see that. There is old transcripts. Those old like type well, that are yeah. on a typewriter. Um, no video. There's hardly even photos. But there's definitely right. no video. But what is research so thorough? <laughs> yes, I have to be. I have to because I have to like cross reference like crazy. And even when I'm saying my in my research, most of it is from articles, um, also from actual uh, like presentation speeches that the lawyer has done. And there was one book that I really wanted to read, but I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, that sucks. There, there's three like quote-unquote big books that were written about this case but david mcnaughton says that two of them are very uh um take a lot of like artistic freedom and license they're very exaggerated Mm -hmm. and sort of dramatized yeah 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 whereas the one book it's called the robert cook murder case an alberta story by frank w anderson that's the one I want to read. So I don't know if anyone has that book or has read it or could lend it to me. I'd love to read it because that's the one that people who are heavily involved in this case always come back to saying that that's the truest document, like accurately documented version. Interesting that it's hard to find. There was like a copy on, I forget what website, Goodreads or something, some like random book website and it was like seven hundred dollars because it was written in like the 60s the early 60s and it's not in print anymore and i was like maybe i should go to the library and see if they have it because it is canadian it's crazy it's so much money oh god yeah and i was like okay no thank you and there's no like uh, there wasn't a e an ebook which is something Mm. else i usually like to try and get but so if anyone ever has that book i would love to read it so yeah he takes this Oh, yeah, taking the stand. Um, he s- stole a car, wandered around Calgary Trail. Uh, nope. He stole a car uh, from the south side of Calgary Trail. He went to Bowdoin to get cash that he had apparently hid there in 57. And then he said after that, he drove back to Edmonton because he was going to return the car that he stole. 
And then he just wanted to walk around because he'd been locked up in prison for two years. So he was just going to go around and explore. His... Makes sense. <laughs> well, okay. Can... No wonder he wanted some fresh air. Like, <laughs> why you said that? <laughs> His alibi, <laughs> taking the stand and giving this alibi, it didn't help him, though, because it took the jury only 32 minutes to find him guilty <laughs> again with no recommendation for mercy. And the mandatory death sentence was upheld. So with that, Robert was transferred to the Fort Saskatchewan Provincial Jail in Alberta to await his execution. I wonder if he looked like a fool like Ted Bundy once he got up there. Like trying so hard to be believable and, you know, really everyone sees sees through you and sees that like, okay, there's something not right with this person. I bet they did. You can't take accountability. You're rewriting everything that happened. Like, yeah. Plus, just throughout the moment he was incarcerated up until this point in the story, he's always like, okay, I have something new to tell you. Okay, I'll finally divulge this information. And you're like, is it because you were afraid to say something? Or is it because you made it up? And now you have a, something that fits. So it's like he's really just not reliable. Mm-hmm. So obviously the defense was not pleased with this with the outcome of the two trials, especially because like you actually won an appeal and then you you lose lose the the case again. So yeah, they were they're pretty upset about that. So council member David McNaughton and Frank Dunn they went to the Supreme Court of Canada to try and get another appeal. But it wasn't granted, and the conviction remained. It's a waste of of the system. Like, yeah, that's just like, a waste you, of... You had two trials, bro. Mm-hmm. The jury's not buying it, and it's... It, it, we're upholding it. It's it, it remains. You're convicted, sentenced to death. Yeah. We're not going to use all those resources for a third trial? Mm-hmm. No. The Do you have new evidence? 30... Do you have something... No. Like, what's the deal? No. You just are... They just did their job. They're like, we're the defense counsel. Yeah. Obviously, you don't want the death sentence, so we'll try. And it was denied. I do think he was scared to die. Um, Yeah. Him resisting as easily as he did, like, he, he probably was thinking, like, I don't want to get shot or killed by these police officers right now, so I will go in peace. Like, that's the thing that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. He he probably did not want to die, <laughs> so they're like, like, "Well, we're gonna appeal this." But then he went down, and you know, to be that guy that died, the last man, <laughs> the last man. <laughs> So as you, as you said before, that you think he probably didn't want to die. Um, I think that makes sense here because having been turned down at the Supreme Court, David McNaughton took to writing letters to the Solicitor General of Canada and the Prime Minister at the time, Jean Deffenbaker. Okay. Requesting. Do you think that this guy is that? I know. <laughs> He's also, at this time, David McNaughton was very young. It was one of his first cases. And Ambitious. obviously, and yeah, and obviously the biggest 
that he'd had and probably ever did have. Mm-hmm. So he, I think, was very ambitious and really just doing his damnedest. Yeah. So he wrote to the Solicitor General. He wrote to the Prime Minister. Uh, he was requesting that the death sentence at least be commuted. So reduce it maybe from death to like life in prison or something, but mm-hmm. at least consider commuting it. And then while awaiting his execution, Robert also wrote to the Solicitor General of Canada and the Prime Minister pleading for clemency. So he wanted he wanted mercy. The jury did not recommend any sort of plea or for mercy, did not say, okay, well, he's guilty, but we won't give him the death sentence. So he was pleading with the Solicitor General and the Prime Minister for uh, some lenience. But he didn't write a letter the way that David McNaughton did. He wrote a whole ass poem. (laughs) It is something. I read in one source that the poem wasn't actually sent to the Solicitor General or the Prime Minister that it later on was given to McNaughton. But mm. there's, there's, there's a whole last poem. You want me to read it for you? Yes, share. I sit here in my death cell. I know not why, for the evidence proved me innocent, and that is no lie. Seven members of my family murdered to date. The jury on a guess would make it number eight. Was it planned that way, or was it just fate? My lawyer's family threatened the same... What reasons can there be for such a dirty game? The judge directed, pay no heed and reject the lead. Pay no heed to another one. Pay no heed to the shirt and gun. Close your eyes. You need not see. Two places at once I could not be. So I ask you, is it strange that I am sentenced to the noose while my family's killer is on the loose? He wiped up his fingerprints, all traces of his crime. Putting a stained suit under the mattress, no doubt he knew it was mine. His purpose clear to see the murder of the missing member without fear of the line. Time he would gain and safe he would be. So I ask you, is it strange that I am sentenced to the noose while my family's killer is on the loose? This is Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Well, that rhymed. (laughs) My family's funeral I wanted to attend. I had to escape and sealed my own fate in the end. If my loved ones saw and wondered why I was not there, I pray God told them of the hounds and the hare. They hounded me by day, they hounded me by night. Bloodhounds and helicopters, oh what a sight. Out to murder, armed and dangerous, they said. That is so funny, I'll laugh till I'm dead. So I ask you, is it strange that I am sentenced to the noose while my family's killer is on the loose? I'm not done. I've heard of justice, but where it can it but where can it be? I looked in the dictionary. Behold, there it is to see. When I sent for my lawyer, he just shook his head. Justice will only come long after you're dead. So you be- so you people of the world take note. It's murder when the innocent die at the end of a rope. Okay. My, my mouth is dry. Jesus Christ. That was actually, I think, an amazing poem. <laughs> <laughs> you loved it. 10 out of 10 would recommend... I thought it was going to end five different times. <laughs> um, it actually reminded me of Dr. Seuss. The way that, the, the I don't know, the like, cadence of it. And the and easy, the, it's very simple vocabulary. Yes, and the way that he's putting it together. Um, and what part was it? I can't remember now, but the one part 
uh, <laughs> something about time. Oh my god! But that's when I was like, okay, this was Dr. Seuss before or after this? Because he must have read it as a child. I'm literally googling it. Well, he Dr. Seuss was born in 1904. Yeah. Oh my god! I know that he's older than like he was or, active from ni- 1921. So yeah, he was definitely. This writing said, books. It sounds like that. The That's Cat in the Hat was released in 1957. Green Eggs and Ham was released in 1960. Interesting. Maybe it's the time. Maybe that's why it kind of reminded me of that. I literally reminded me of Green Eggs and Ham type of vibe. Mm-hmm. The way that he put that together. Um, very interesting. That he's apparently a secret little poet. Poet. I know, right? Is there anything in his birth chart that speaks to his artistic poetry skills um i he has venus in gemini oh um, beautiful and a a huge outlet for people who have a mercurial um venus is is writing is poetry um very good with words uh so i'm i'm not surprised that he might actually have kind of been like a little maybe closet you know, maybe he really was into closet Seuss. Yeah, like I don't know. Maybe he did really like to read. Like we don't know too much about him that way. Like what his hobbies were and his interests. But um, that Venus position does indicate that you are, um, that you are into stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if uh, maybe like it's an act of imagination. Um, yeah. In a in a place like that, I wish I could see where it was in his chart. Of course, again. Um, <laughs> But he has quite strong aspects to Saturn, um, so it was important for him to stimulate this aspect that I gather. But no, I I just think that's funny. I'm not surprised he would be able to put together something that at least is like... So he's a poser. You're saying he literally did steal from Seuss. <laughs> does that Dr. not remind Seuss. you of Dr. Seuss? No, it does. And I never read it out loud. The way so, as with I was the, cave, the whole it. vibe to it, it was very like... <laughs> um kind of kind of childish like you said like it's simple the vocabulary mm-hmm. it's nothing um super deeper or anything it's he's saying exactly what he feels there's no questioning to it it's very clear um but it just i don't know i actually thought it was pretty pretty good it's not horrible it's just dramatic oh it's, my very dramatic, it's very dramatic and it gives good it's insight being a drama queen it's an insight into his imagination that kind of was like perspective i think about what it's like in his head and that rewriting and and the the way that his mind must work must work where he's like and there's multiple versions of this poem too like uh, down the road as years passed they would find uh different books that had his poems sort of just crammed into them and stuff and there was slight variations to this exact poem interesting so working on this one this is a final draft though <laughs> i think that um yeah the time period is showing through with how he put that together and that's why it has that vibe yeah i yeah <laughs> i can see it too and especially after reading it out loud i never read it out loud i had just um copy and pasted it oh my god so Reading it out loud is like, oh my god, silly. Silly little Robert. <laughs> the sad thing about this, though, is that the letters and his poems, it didn't, uh, it didn't do anything. It proved futile because on November 14th, just one day before Robert's scheduled execution, David McNaughton received a telegraph stating the governor general would not interfere with the sentence. So he wasn't about to step in and commute it 
grant mercy leniency nothing he was Mm -hmm. like nope not stepping in it's going ahead as scheduled yeah not surprised so despite maintaining his innocence to the very end on november 15th 1960 at 12.02 a.m., 23-year-old Robert Raymond Cook was hanged, and at 12.18 a.m., he was pronounced dead, making him the last man to be executed in Alberta. So cool. 12.02. I mean. 12.02 is when he was... I know what you mean. 12.02 is when he was hanged. 12.18 is when he was pronounced dead. That's a long gap. <laughs> Do you think he just wait, there? Wait, sorry. Say that again. <laughs> 12.02 a.m. Yeah. Is when he was hanged. 1218 is when he was pronounced dead. So I don't know if his neck broke. He might have just been yeah. strangling to death. Gruesome. That's not good for someone who was scared to die. And it was, this was November, did you say 14th, sorry? Or 15th? Uh, 14th when, it was the 15th that he was hanged. The 14th when the telegraph went through. That's interesting. So 15th. At 12.02 a.m. So the sun would have been very close to his natal Mars that day. Ooh. Hmm. That's interesting. Like the sun would have been conjunct his natal Mars. It was Scorpio season. It was Scorpio season. And then his Mars is perfectly trying his sun. Mm. And sextile to Jupiter and is a huge... um, config like it plays into that aspect Uh, his death does i think that um again we can't see exactly where this activity is playing out in terms of like what time of day he was born and if he has something near the descendant um which is a good tool to use to see that someone's death might be very I don't I don't know what word to use actually um you might have like a very impact impactful impactful, yes something that um is other people experience and witness or are touched by um because it's such an open part of the chart and it's the house of others so often like it could be there's lots of you know maybe media on it or or it has to do with yeah it's just very open in the chart and because it's where the sun sets mm-hmm. um i I've, I've read it as that's where the light goes out so when you have planets there um you have to be more cautious in life because like um you are more susceptible to things it's literally worded and i um, i can't remember who exactly said it it's in my hellenistic astrology book that um things are more easily able to extinguish your light and you have to be careful. So I wish I could see exactly where that aspect's playing out um, in his chart. But with the fact that the sun would have been on his Mars around the time Mm -hmm. of his death, and Mars is very unpleasant (laughs) in terms of like it's the energy yeah, yeah when and it not in every way but when you of course are looking at it through this lens the the violence of it comes out and it's in rulership there and then having a strong aspect to his son which is your life force and then also having a strong aspect to his jupiter which also aspect each other they all are speaking together so that day 
Um, it's very like, okay, you can't escape your fate, like his poem says, but <laughs> right. and how it is very fateful when you look at it through and that how lens. heavily influenced how heavily influenced by jupiter he's been his whole life mm-hmm. yep he has that magnetic pull to it his son is opposite it but he can't get along with it he doesn't get along with you know he just doesn't get along with others it sounds like he doesn't really have a no. good relationship with the world and with people and with um like his leaders or people he sounds like he rejected influences or like there's just a a huge distance there like I've said so I'm not surprised that that day it's it's interesting when you look at events and then you compare it to the birth chart and like where the sun was lighting up and I just yeah. think it's interesting it would be on his Mars which flow right to his sun in Jupiter and um again like he did not have luck on his side and that's mm-hmm. present in his chart that he did not um he was not really able to swing things his way um, no, and, couldn't get away with any of his crimes. Yeah, had, was in, immediately getting caught for things and spending majority of his life mm-hmm. in, in prison or jail. And the mark that you leave um, is seen through the sun, and yeah, he is the mark that he's left being mm-hmm. the last man hanged, and you know this man mm-hmm. that murdered his whole family, and it's also there's um. Yeah, the the aspect, the number twenty two in astrology is is um is apparently an unpleasant degree. Um, I think the wording that I read was, uh, kill or be killed, or to kill or be killed. Um, I remembered um reading that years ago. I wish I could remember exactly what, like where I read that. Mm-hmm. Um. But the number 22, every every number has energy. Um, but that and first time... And he's hanged at 12.02. Mm-hmm. And he has... 12.02 as 2-2. His Jupiter's at the degree number 22. And Oof. depending on his son, his son could have moved into the 23rd, um, like number 23 later. But it is... At noon, it's number 22 as well. And I, That's wild. Th- I wonder if there's something to that, you know, it's weird that that number is noted in astrology is apparently being related to um, being unlucky and like very negative energy. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. So I was just thinking about how he was almost, I was like, oh my God, was he 22 when this happened? But no, he was 21 when he murdered He didn't even make family. it to 22 or. And then he would oh, have wait. been. 23. He was 23. Yeah, he was 23. Nobody likes He was 23. <laughs> but crazy. Um, also, th- I've come to the part where at, at the beginning I said I had a, like a fact for you that speaks a lot to the, um, I believe, Saturn relationship mm-hmm. he had. So um, according to David McNaughton, for the time – from the time that Robert was incarcerated at the age of 14 to the time that he was executed, he was only out of jail. So he was only a free man for 243 days. So not even eight months of his life since he was 14 was he free. Yeah, he didn't he was, have... He the, was oh always in... Jupiter freedom. In, <laughs> he really had bad luck. Like, I mean, on top... 
you know, I believe that you inherit luck. I do like karma is real, you know, Saturn Mm -hmm. karma and him having both of those planets in fall in the weakest positions in those chart and his Mm -hmm. Jupiter is stronger in terms of aspect. It has more pull. Um, And then his Saturn is, is kind of just chilling again. I, who knows if it's on an axis point, like the ascendant or something, and we can't see it. But um, mm-hmm. it's not as strong in his chart as Jupiter. Um, and he really was not able to swing, like, swing things to be on his side. Um, and it, Even if he tried. He tried. And then Aries, no. Saturn, the karma, like, that you inherit in this life is very personal. It's, it's mm-hmm. not so much outside of yourself and you might be um, surrounded by circumstances and events that happen. It very much happens to you when you experience these negative things firsthand and you learn the hard way. Um, and in very like startling manners. Uh, yeah, very like ab- abrupt. Yes, abrasive. Like, abrasive. Yeah, very abrupt. Um, Again, the head injury, I think, is interesting with the Aries part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think his Saturn's most connected to Mercury um, and shows it's it's an easygoing aspect. It's a natural flow. So I really, he, he didn't, he had such a lack of control in that shows. If his Saturn was more aspected and present in his chart i think he would have been more of a control freak um he would have been more dangerous perhaps at a younger age maybe he um would have had more of like a present power struggle between the two but he really was like seemed comfortable with it the fact that he was in prison for so much of his life um he was comfortable and identified with it i think that that shows i was just gonna say that I was just going to say, obviously identified with it and in him not having um, close friends that I could see, mm-hmm. um, a family that was very distant, his father being so much older than him, because um, obviously his father would be older than him, but like to be in your early 20s and your father is in his early 50s, like that's a pretty big gap for back then. Yeah, that's a significant age and- gap. And then Daisy being so much younger than his father and closer in age to Robert and then having all these siblings that are so young, just tiny children, having no one in a in the free world to identify with and relate to makes sense that he lived the life he did and um, spent so much time in, in a place where he was more relatable. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that his it shows that he's a risk taker but he didn't exactly like not in healthy ways not like you know you should be a risk taker in life um but for him it was like again it was more compulsive and dangerous um um he was gambling like he was gambling with his life a lot um and i don't think that he realized that
surprisingly, or maybe not at all surprisingly, you can be the judge, not everyone is on the same page when it comes to Robert Cook. So some people are certain that he murdered his family and justice was served. Others firmly believe an innocent man was executed. And then there's some people that sit on the fence. So David McNaughton, part of the defense counsel, is someone who probably counts as sitting on the fence. So in 2019, McNaughton and a man named Malcolm Fisher, who is a retired teacher, Stetler council member, and he's been fascinated with the case since he was only nine years old because he was he's a native to Stetler. He's lived there his whole life. And when he was nine, that's when the murders happened. Yeah. So he's always been fascinated by them. So the two men had uh, regularly spoke to groups, to classes, students about the case. But in 2019, they spoke at a convention center in Stetler to talk about the case and sort of have like a friendly debate about it. They state their views on his guilt or his innocence. And uh, apparently it was bombing because, you know, there was about 300 people that went. Wow. Stetler's not a huge place. So So it's quite controversial. Yeah, there's there's people. But I watched a lot of this recording for the their little speech. speech thing they did at the convention center and i've also watched a lot of news footage of people just getting interviewed and asked about it and it seems that there's a lot of people who don't like believe they do believe he he did it and he was he justice was served but then they all say the same thing like you know you'll be talking about it with people and they'll say something and then you think oh well i don't know maybe he didn't so the majority of people seem to kind of sit on the fence Mm -hmm. So McNaughton leans towards Robert being innocent, mostly, like, not mostly, but likely, because that's his defense counsel. He's going to always stick with his client. And I'm going to say innocent, like, loosely, but we'll get into that. Whereas Malcolm Fisher, he's on the side that Robert's guilty. He's, justice was served, he's guilty. So McNaughton believes that the evidence against Robert was circumstantial and there shouldn't have been a guilty verdict. He said that Robert seemed genuinely horrified when he learned of the murders. He said if he were the judge, he would never have been able to find Robert guilty. There was no motive. Robert had never been involved in violence and he didn't have any violent charges. He did not own a gun, but, you know, that can be taken either way. He could have stolen it. He was a thief. He was a little klepto, sticky fingers. Yeah, exactly. There wasn't any blood on his clothes or his shoes. There was no blood in the car. Um, But he was apprehended days after the murder. So there was tons of time for him to clean up. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have any cuts or bruises on his hands. So in the video I watched from the convention, he ended his whole spiel about like how where he stands and how he Robert should not have been found guilty. He ended the spiel by saying, quote, he may well have done it, but there was doubt. <laughs> so, not really helpful. You think that your own lawyer thinks that he might have done it, but there was doubt. So, Malcolm, on the other hand, he straight up thinks Robert committed the murders. He was guilty. Justice was served that day. So, Malcolm Fisher said that Cook's motive for the murders was that he came home from prison a year early and wanted his father to follow through with their previous plan of moving to BC. But Raymond was like, nah, I don't want to do that. I have a good job here in Stetler. I got a wife. I have all these young kids to worry about. 
I'm not moving to BC. I have no idea where this uh, alleged motive came from. I have not read anything that Raymond and Robert had a previous conversation about moving to BC, but mm-hmm. very well could have been something. So there there was never a motive established, so it's speculative. Interesting. And then there was a rumor um, in town, and it still is around today, that some people were claiming that Robert's uncle made a deathbed confession claiming to be the killer. But people who have been involved with the case and studied it for years, like McNaughton and Fisher, they say that that is not true. It's just local lore and it's a common rumor conspiracy. And uh, it made me think about how in episode 12, um, the Smutty Nose Island axe murders, there was an article that was written claiming that the surviving victim, Marin, made a deathbed confession. And it was proven that she was still alive and she was healthy. The article was a hoax and it was retracted. But to this day, people don't realize that and they run with the theory that she was the murderer. So that that is an example of how deathbed confessions are always a common like lore. It's easy to say the person's not around to speak for themselves or clarify anything that they did or didn't say. Mhm, exactly. So uh, not that my opinion is important, um but I can see both sides. I can see why McNaughton says he shouldn't have been found guilty because there is gaps in the timeline and the evidence. But I also agree with Fisher that I think that they got the right man. So when all of the evidence is circumstantial, like it was in this case, the evidence has to tell a story that can definitively bring you to the conclusion that the person on trial committed the crime. If the evidence can't do that, then there is room for reasonable doubt And you have to really assess and evaluate if someone can be found guilty with that evidence. In this case, after two trials, both juries thought the evidence was sufficient enough Mm -hmm. to say he was guilty, brought it, the evidence brought them to the conclusion that Robert was guilty without a doubt. So, I mean, (laughs) I agree with you. I think that you can see, especially when, you know, there is no smoking gun. I guess Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you can see how there could be doubt, um, but I agree with you that I think that they got the right person as well. Yeah. Um, And I think that there's more things that point to him doing it than not. And yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, he's not trustworthy. He, I don't care that he hasn't committed a violent crime. I don't think that you, I don't know. That we know yes. he could have been violent. He could have been beating up people to get their cars, yeah. but he just never was charged with any of them. Like, we don't know mm-hmm. that. And I just think that the jury made the right calls to find him guilty the both time, both times. And the most persuasive thing in the case, honestly, is, is only his own word. It's only his own word. Mm-hmm. And then you would have to believe that, but it's just not believable. I don't think no, there's... especially when you have an entire ent- history of being a compulsive mm-hmm. liar, a consciousless liar, whatever, like, it didn't do yourself any favors, that's yeah. for sure. And at the end of the day, McNaughton, part of his own defense counsel, is saying, like, yeah, he probably did it, but there was doubt. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, that's 
oh well <laughs> if there's reasonable doubt all we have to do is find that reasonable doubt like that's not enough for if if it, it nope. looks logically like this person did it and i bet that if they could test um dna if this happened closer to you know today time um with dna technology like i bet that they could have found evidence that actually proved that he did it like gunshot residue and stuff like that and yeah like there must have been some evidence somewhere but i wonder if mm-hmm. surveillance or something if there if there was surveillance footage that would be helpful to sort of yeah. make a timeline of but his back then i mean even if there was right. technology it was really expensive and most i don't think small places would really have it like that i don't think yeah yeah in the 50s there was nothing like that there all you have yeah. is like fingerprint analysis there's no there's nothing just, other than that like, i DNA can't wise no matter which way you slice it i don't really see him being innocent i think you're just kind of thinking emotionally like this is a young person they they haven't been violent that we know of but it's not enough Also, he maybe never was violent, but you do have to you have to take into account the stress of being in prison, of getting released a year early when you think you mm-hmm. still have another year to prepare for the real world, and the head injury being mm-hmm. fucking nailed in the head with a lead pipe. Like, there's a lot of um, like factors leading up to it that yeah. definitely didn't help. So. I guess if we're both on the same page, it looks like he did it. It seems like his own lawyer, one of his own lawyers, thinks that he probably did it. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. that's the that's the Robert Raymond Cook and horrible, brutal murder of seven people. Seven people is his mm-hmm. only his only family murdered, all of them. If there were even other suspects or something, but the fact that there's only an apparent uncle that gave a deathbed confession, yeah. really? There's no there's no one else even on the docket to have done this. You could say there's some shoddy police work, I guess, but also like <laughs> I don't I don't know if anything points to that. I think that Mm-mm. they did their best and I think that they I think that was good investigating yeah. for the time, especially. They seemed one, like they checked the corporal, off. Tom Roach, I think is his name, and he was like, something's wrong here. Let's get let's get the RCMP out here. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, maybe this guy is the worst luck in the world, and it just happens to look like it was him, and it really wasn't, and he was committing this robbery at a laundromat or something. Like, okay, maybe, but I just, yeah. They couldn't cooperate that. They looked into it. Looked at the at the uh, laundromat or cleaners, whatever that it supposedly happened at. Talked to the supposed accomplice, and just nothing lined up. So they just were like, yeah. and that's the thing. He seems like one of those people who who lies, but there's truth in it. Mm-hmm. So maybe at one point he really did rob that place, and Sonny was with him. Yeah, but maybe it wasn't technically that time Mm -hmm. he just decided i'll just say it was that thursday even though we actually robbed that place like a year ago yeah something like that any other life any final comments observations made um i think that we went into it pretty pretty in depth it's definitely an interesting one i love when we do these ones and it's just really speculative and like you know Mm -hmm. where 
it's an older case and and so it's interesting when someone's life life has already played out and in right. this case it was a short life um so it was, yeah it's i wish we knew what time he was born yes it would be so cool um but this one was so cool uh and it's fun breaking it down through the so nice to have you back finally yeah We'll definitely have to do it again soon. I think that we should cover um, a historical event, maybe, and maybe do look at the chart for the day and the time that something occurred. Um, that would be very interesting. Very cool, because then we're not looking at people or like a, a specific person exactly, or people in their lives. We're looking at an, an event, and we're looking at the people involved in the event, and like the objects involved, and like the whole I got day. One. There's so many. I have one. I have one that would be very interesting, and I have like yeah times and stuff. One minute I gotta. That would be so cool. We could see. You know, it it just would be another fun activity I think for us to do on the podcast. It would be that I totally agree. We've looked into my notes. Tom Thompson, which was a cool mystery. So we've kind of looked at things through like a mystery lens, and then we've got Jody Arias and Travis um alexander which was cold-blooded murder and then we had um the divers tom and eileen is that tom and eileen yes lonergan Mm -hmm. remember when we were recording i could not say lonergan and now i have it i know i could not remember that part um which was another really cool mystery the mysteries are so cool that one is actually one of our best performing episodes. That's, I think, our second awesome. most Awesome. I love that. I think it's it's good when we just go with that flow and let it... We can... What do you think about this? The Victoria Steamboat Disaster. I don't know about that. I haven't heard of it, um, but absolutely it's, it sounds... It's Canadian one. It's London, Ontario. I got the exact date. I have specific times. Amazing. I was thinking with the Halifax one, I would. I was thinking I would have loved to like depict something like this. So this kind of sounds like it's in that realm. Yep. It's another like unexpected disaster. It's uh, some Uranus steamboat. activity. We'll be examining. We'll be looking at Jupiter. Mm-hmm. We'll be looking at Saturn if this involves water. Like, there's going to be lots of things that we're going to be... I, I haven't heard about this one, so I'm not sure, but... I have... They're, like, notes I had started a long time ago, so I haven't... It's when I was first starting the uh, Forest City series. Oh, so, okay. So, like, episode four. So, I haven't looked at my notes in a while, but it's one that I have on my list I've wanted to do, so we can schedule that one in for July. Yeah. We can do that one. Yes, That'll we should. Good. It, we're all right perfect yeah it would be fun we kind of did a little bit of event with tom and eileen like looking at the day and how exactly you know that concept of the planets shining on your planets and now um yeah this will be fun we'll be looking be, at a day just a nice change of pace mm-hmm. at a I historical can... event we can get into that and if people have recommendations for things that they want us to look at too and talk about um, of events or people or mm-hmm. things that have happened, send them in and then we can absolutely do like an astrology episode about about whatever it is. Yeah, and that you make a good point. It doesn't have to be the the chart of a person. Mm-hmm. It, can it can be, be... of a of the day and of an event. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That, send them in. Send them over. You, you're interested in – not. it doesn't have to be the steamboat disaster. It could be um, – Yeah, like 
we've done the a mysteries. A plane crash. Yep. Mysteries, accidents, <laughs> murders. Mysteries, yes. Accidents. Thank you. Accidents. <laughs> Disasters. Mysteries. Unsolved. Disappearances. Mm-hmm. Cold cases. And like anything. Literally anything. Anything dark, spooky, macabre, true yes. crime. It's fun to uh, look at this. We want suggestions from people because at the end of the day, like you guys are the ones listening. Yeah. So we want to hear what you want to hear because that's who we're speaking to. (laughs) Thank you everyone for tuning into this week's episode. Make sure you rate the show and subscribe wherever you're listening. You can follow us on Instagram, on Twitter. We are on Facebook and like Steph and I were just talking about, make sure you message us some case suggestions. And most importantly, thank you, Steph, for joining us. I love having you on. Love being here. Thank you for having me. Can't wait to do another episode and to tune into um, next week. Um, did you shift your schedule as well or will Paige be on? Paige will be on at the end so of June. So that will be on the 27th oh, okay. when that episode comes out. But next week, um, we are going to do the uh, Nitari Serial Murders. That is um, from India. So Ooh. we're leaving Canada next week, and we're going to go to India. Exciting. Can't wait. We're doing the Nitari Serial Murders. It will be uh, <laughs> it'll be a dark one. I'm excited. I haven't heard of that. Tune in it's... next week, everyone. And until then, we'll catch you on the dark side. I love the bloopers. They're my favorite part. It was fun. Say we'll see you on the dark side the first time. We'll see you in the dark. We'll see you in the dark. <laughs> we'll catch you. We'll catch you. That's it. We'll catch you. Catch you later. <laughs> I know. Oops. What are you eating? Are you eating over there? Got some strawberries. <laughs> you hiding strawberries under the table? It's my floor set up here. <laughs> um. What are you doing? Definitely not taking a video of you non collaborative playing with a cat toy. <laughs> the, the laptop is on Kobe's cat house, so there's this ball that's attached to it. And. <laughs> I have just been playing with it. Like, I don't know. I'm just like fidgety, right? And I need to keep my hands busy. Yeah. <laughs> so instead of talking with my hands and repeatedly punching my microphone and playing with a cat toy. <laughs> and he's was taking a video, apparently. No, what are you doing? <laughs> okay. What was the last thing I said? But the, oh, the lights <gasps> and the property and whatever. So. I've been looking at it. I can see that we're recording. Dyson just looked over and went, it's now a bad time to tell you it hasn't been recording. Oh, no. <laughs> I've been looking, though. I can see it. It's recording. You little dick. Yeah, I've been checking periodically. <coughs> and I'm like, okay.